Did Economists Move the Democrats Rightward? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. American public policy includes a lot of economistic thinking. Policy analysts weigh costs and benefits, use economic projections and models, and try to calculate the value of almost everything. That may not have been inevitable. The impact of economists and their fellow travelers, especially culminating in the 1970s, may have set the nation on a different policy path. This week, I talk with Elizabeth Pop Berman of the University of Michigan about her new book, Thinking Like an Economist. She finds that a revolution in applied microeconomics brought about a shift in bureaucratic agencies, which led to self-reinforcing requests for more economics trainees and economistic ideas, with governments increasingly asking for a particular form of economic analysis that limited the scope of government action, paired with a growing academic sector willing to provide it. But Berman is not just interested in academic and bureaucratic trends. She says this economic revolution helps explain how the Democratic Party moved rightward, foreclosing further left economic alternatives by changing the language and criteria for policymaking. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Why don't you start with a a summary of the book? What were your big findings and implications? Yeah, well, um, so the book is is basically trying to do two things, right? So it's, it's trying to show how what I'm calling an economic style of reasoning, really entered Washington and moved around and became incorporated into a lot of different places in the policymaking process. So one piece of it is just sort of tracing that historical story. And then the book is also arguing that that as this economic style of thinking was introduced and really um, institutionalized in a lot of ways, that it became uh, that, it, that it shaped the kinds of policy options that were considered and that it became a constraint on policy and that that was particularly the case for, for Democrats. So why don't you make that a little more concrete? So give us a few examples of um, what is an economic style of, of uh, policymaking and, and what might it entail? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, so just to just to do a little definitional kind of kind of thing, the way I think of um, the economic style of reasoning is not necessarily what PhD economists are doing, right? It's sort of more of a microeconomic econ 101 um, approach to policy, sort of a broad focus on uh, choice, incentives, cost effectiveness, weighing costs and benefits, thinking about trade-offs, those kinds of of, of basic concepts that you can use as as a set of tools for thinking about policy. Um, And in terms of what that actually looked like in practice, you know, there's one um, example uh, I use it in the beginning of the book that uh, I like because it really illustrates how much things changed over a period of time that in, uh, you know, and, and I use the the Clean Air and Water Act uh, from the early 70s and then looking at the, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 as, um, as a good example of, of how the economic style of reasoning sort of did become built into certain kinds of policy. And so if you go back and look at those original pieces of legislation, um, they did not draw on economics as a discipline at all. Um, in fact, there's this great uh, piece by an economist after who wrote it saying um, about the Clean Air, the Clean Water Act, saying "Why did nobody listen to the economists?" is the subtitle of the of the piece, right? Um, and it was really grounded in ideas about ecology. It's kind of coming out of social movement spaces. There's a lot of attention to health. Um, and there's also uh, specifically, explicitly, no um, focus on costs. 
um, in part for political reasons, right? And so it's sort of growing out of a theory about regulatory capture that you know if we make these um, if we make these pieces of legislation with these absolute goals in them and don't pay attention to costs, that will help to limit the potential for regulatory capture. Um, and so that's sort of you know what the, the before looks like. By the time 1990 rolls around and you're looking at the at the um, Clean Air Act amendments, you know the centerpiece of that ends up being um, the Acid Rain Program, which is the first big cap and trade program. And so now instead of having this um, this moral tinge to the debate, uh, this idea that you know that pollution is wrong, we shouldn't do it. Um, instead, we've got a very uh, different approach that thinks of pollution as an externality that if we can figure out how to price it. Um, then we can figure out how to reduce it in the most efficient way possible. And, um, and you know, and that obviously becomes the model for a lot of other cap and trade programs uh, in the decades that follow. And so that's kind of the, the type of shift that I'm talking about here. So tell us a little bit of the story behind the book, how it builds on your prior work um, and sort of uh, how much it transformed from idea to execution. Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, so, so in some ways this, grew out of my first book, which was about, I think I've always been interested in the intersection, like in how, how we think about governing markets, right? How do we organize markets? How do we think about, um, you know, what kinds of, of rules they should follow? Um, and, you know, my first book was about universities. And so it was called Creating the Market University, How Academic Science Became an Economic Engine. And so it was really looking at how science became more entrepreneurial and in the course of that, um, the story that ended up kind of coming out of that ended up being much more of a policy centric story than I expected it to be. And so, you know, so so one of the takeaways from that book is that, you know, in the 70s, policymakers kind of seized on the idea that technological innovation drives economic growth and that that became a really powerful uh, argument politically for um, for creating policies that ended up uh, promoting entrepreneurship among scientists. And, you know, so, so, you know, so that kind of partly was how I got interested in, you know, well, how does economic thinking actually affect politics? Um, but, you know, but I think the other piece of it is just, you know, at a personal level, um, you know, somebody who like kind of came in the age in the, in the nineties and, you know, kind of grew up politically, you know, as a person who's fairly progressive growing up in, in that era and really thinking about um, it always felt like the range of policy options were very constrained. Um, and they, it, it always felt to me like they were constrained in a particular way. And I really, you know, I, I think that was something that was sort of had been sitting at the back of my mind for a long time. And that sort of shaped how I started to think about the question and like why it really, why it really, um, you know, drove me at the same time that, you know, that it was also kind of growing out of these intellectual interests. So the book uh, is a pretty concrete history. You have a lot of uh, sort of specific stories of, of people and institutions that brought about this transformation. So tell us a, a, a couple of your, your favorites of the actors uh, and what they were actually doing to bring this about. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the one set of people that I really just enjoy reading and learning about are, are, are this group of economists who were coming from the Rand Corporation in the 1960s, right? So, you know, uh, the Rand Corporation, people today might not think of it purely as being about, about defense, right? It does a lot of research in education and health and these other areas. But at the time, it was really a defense think tank. 
and it hired a lot of economists to um, try to help solve these problems for the Air Force, basically figure out how we're going to, you know, defend um, against the potential of a a Soviet attack as as cost effectively as possible, basically. Um, And and there were a set of people uh, at RAND. Uh, the guy who was sort of the, the leader of the economics department there was a guy named Charles Hitch. And he was sort of one of my, um, he, I just think he's a really interesting character. He's sort of uh, very mild mannered, you know, somebody in an oral history describes him as as the kind of guy who uh, wears a suit to a picnic, right? So, you know, he's got a, he's got a particular, you know, he's, he's sort of a low key sort of person. Um, but he ends up, um, coming to Washington in 1960 with Robert McNamara. So McNamara sort of finds out um, what these folks at Rand have been doing, thinks it would be really great to scale up these um, sort of budgeting methods that are really uh, developed by economists and sort of grounded broadly in economic thinking and introduce them to the Defense Department. And so Hitch is the one who brings them there, who really starts to um, implement them uh, and who is is seen as doing this very effectively, and it becomes so effective that um, Johnson in 1965 decides to roll this out across all federal agencies. And so this is sort of like a really critical moment where you know somebody who could have just had this influence in this very specific policy domain ends up uh, creating a lot of changes that have all these all these downstream effects because uh, because it becomes a way to think about. Uh, how to how to budget and how to make budgeting decisions much more generally in government. So you say that uh, this transformation helps explain um, sort of the transformation of the Democratic Party to how it got in in the nineties when uh, you were most familiar <laughs> with it. Um, uh, but you say it sort of explains how, but perhaps not why, or that there's a whole set of factors um, that that might have explained why. So so kind of make the case for that. Um, explain that that sort of distinction, um, and maybe. I guess, uh, convince us that it, this really is about kind of trends in the Democratic Party rather than um, the resurgence of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. Right, right. And, you know, and I do think, right, I mean, most of what I focus on in the book is is more something that's happening on the Democratic side. I mean, there is a sort of piece that's sort of the conservative economic piece that's particularly more influential in, in antitrust, which is one of the areas I look like so look at. So it's not 100% a story about... Um, about Democrats, but you know, but what you really do have is um, so. So for one thing, um, most of the techniques that I'm talking about, and sort of most of the moments where uh, where you have spaces for economic reasoning kind of being built into new places in, in Washington. So you have policy offices being created, or you have something like the CBO being created at the Congressional Budget Office. These are all projects that are are driven by people associated with the Democratic Party, and they are really uh, people who are, um, you know, for the most part, you know, think government has an important role to play. They're just trying to figure out how to make it work better, how to make it more more cost effective. They, you know, they become pretty influential within the party. And, you know, in part because, because their influence isn't just about being, giving advice to specific uh, politicians or specific presidents. It's much more about building an infrastructure that sort of supports this way of thinking. And so you see the growth of you know, new kinds of, of, of think tanks and um, kind of research shops, places like uh, the Urban Institute. Um, you see uh, uh, the creation of public policy schools, uh, which are 
kind of a direct response to these new techniques that are being used and the demand for people who are, are trained um, in being able to produce these kinds of analyses. Um, and, and it becomes much more built into what the, what the Democratic Party does than it does for Republicans. And so, you know, so by the time um, that, that Reagan is elected, you know, a lot of this stuff is in place. And, but, but Reagan kind of approaches economics much um, differently in that he tends to use it. Um, he sort of supports it when it lines up with his um, kind of existing policy preferences, right? And, and rejects it in, in cases where it doesn't. And so you see sort of a much more selective use of economics uh, in that case than you did, for example, under the Carter administration. So this is a story uh, both about um, economist thinking and or economistic thinking and uh, more conservative uh, thinking as as well. Um, to what extent is economistic thinking sort of inherently uh, conservative uh, in comparison to, say, uh, something like sociology? Um, and is there kind of an alternative story where economics was very influential but did not have this effect or that something like sociology uh, was influential in a uh, conservatizing uh, effect instead? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's a really good question, right? So so I think there is a way in which, um, you know, disciplines don't necessarily have any inherent moral or political valence to them, right? They kind of emerge as configurations of tools and frameworks and ideas that are are responding to these broader outside pressures and that are sort of a combination of of responses to to what's going on in the world in combination with the the new ideas that people are developing on the ground in these in these different disciplinary spaces. Um, and so, you know, so I don't think any discipline necessarily has to have a uh, you know, conservative or less conservative uh, tilt to it. Um, and, you know, and I think sometimes you see a, a, a pretty significant shift within disciplines over time too. Um, but I do think there's a way in which um, economics, as it becomes an influential discipline, um, you know, does end up having a lot of ties to, uh, you know, to um, money basically, right? To, to, to business, to um, finance to uh, financial interests that I do think indirectly sort of uh, point it towards a particular set of questions and kind of shape the, the, the range of answers that people are willing to consider within that. And so I think, um, you know, I think whatever discipline you have that's sort of most tied to the status quo in some ways is going to have some conservative tendencies to it, which, you know, isn't necessarily to say that that's always, you know, that that's going to be true of every person within the discipline or that that's necessarily how it's always going to be. And what about, is there an alternative history where something like sociology is influential and, and what kinds of institutions would, would it develop um, if it, if there was some sort of socialization, sociologicalization of the, of government? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not sure I would, I, you know, I'm a sociologist, but I'm not sure I would advocate for putting the sociologist in, in, in charge, but um but you know, but I do think that 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 it's clear that you know people coming from different disciplines are going to bring different frameworks to policy problems and are going to think about them in different ways. And um, you know, I think just one 
uh, one sort of example of this might be, uh, uh, you know, how do you how do you think about the concept of of power in a policy context, right? And and you know, economists might talk about market power specifically, and you know, a, a sort of a narrow form of power that's really about uh, you know the ability to to raise prices, but don't tend to theoretically work with a broader conception of power. Whereas, uh, you know, sociologists or I think political scientists to a, to a, a greater degree, um, you know, might find that to be something that's more central to their analytic lens. And I think that sort of shapes then how you think about what kinds of policies, uh, you know, might make sense. Think about sort of the political implications as well as the technical ones. And uh, yeah, it might just take you to some different places. So you uh, you track the development of masters of public policy uh, schools as a kind of an instantiation of this uh, economic uh, influence, uh, and then how it feeds back into into academia. Um, but at least from my from my perspective, it seems now like public policy schools are quite concerned with equality, um, have a more diverse uh, range of disciplines uh, represented. So, uh, to what extent is uh, do, are, do these institutions kind of get set in motion uh, by the economists and keep going? And to what extent do they take a different shape uh, once they once they start? Yeah, no, I, I, policy schools are like a super interesting space, right? <laughs> both both historically and and right now. I mean, but I think I mean so one one important thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, is that policy schools were also always kind of liberal in a way, right? Policy schools are basically about figuring out how to do government well, like how to do policy well. And so, you know, if you're really, if you're really kind of starting from a point that government should be doing less then the idea that you're sort of going to build a career on figuring out how to do it well, doesn't really fit that well with that. So, you know, so from right from day one, I think economy, you know, policy schools have been um, liberal in, in some sense. Um, but it is it is really interesting, you know, I think what you've got going on is that that historically um, public policy programs have been uh, quite interdisciplinary, um, but also sort of broadly oriented towards microeconomics in that, you know, it's typically, uh, you know, microeconomics are, are some of the core classes, they're sort of cost benefit analysis, which is closely tied to that. And so um, it's sort of uh, a central part of the curriculum even as uh, you know, there's there's lots of disciplines represented in policy programs, um, but it is really interesting. I mean, I think you do see this shift in really the last few years, uh, where there has been a much greater focus on uh, equality, like you said, uh, sort of more progressive um, goals. I think within policy schools, um, which is interesting. And I think maybe some of that is about, um, I mean, yeah, I th- I th- there's a piece of this, this is about the larger political fracture and the fact that there's fewer conservatives within academia at all. And so, you know, so those people aren't necessarily part of the same conversation anymore. Um, and then I think there's also a piece of it that is uh, student driven, right? And just from the people I've talked to, the students enrolling in masters of public policy programs uh, just look different than they did 10 years ago. And they have a different set of concerns. And I think in some ways the the schools are responding to that. So, you know, at least that's my, my perception is that there's a little bit of this that's kind of a bottom-up change. 
So uh, the, the, the book is sort of told from the perspective of skepticism of some of these uh, uh, some of these transformations, but I wanted to give you a chance to sort of make the pro case uh, for some of this uh, planning, budgeting and economic thinking. What are the what are the most positive uh, aspects of it and, and what is worth keeping? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, I think you, anytime you're talking about doing something that's, um, you know, that involves governance in some significant way, you know, I think you're going to need quantification and formal tools for being able to evaluate and, and think about, about what's actually happening. And so, you know, so when it comes to something like cost benefit analysis, which I talk about uh, somewhat, uh, you know, mildly critically in, in the book, um, I don't see that as something that we should just get rid of or abolish or not uh, do that. You know, that's always you're always going to need to consider costs in some sense. I mean, that's sort of pretty fundamental to to policymaking. Um, you know, and, and I think what I would would advocate instead is for both more explicitly revisiting some of the um, some of the assumptions that are based into the way that we do it, and also for more acknowledgement that. Um, that these are not neutral tools. That the choices that you make about how to how to do something like cost benefit analysis have implications of their own. But there's there's a lot of places where I think economics brings a lot of value to policy. And I think you know the other big example that comes to mind is just um, you know the causal inference revolution of the last couple of decades, and just the idea of of how many new tools have come from economics to help us think about. Uh, you know, how do we measure what the effect is of a policy? You know, how how do we think about measuring outcomes and about doing that in a in a statistically convincing way? So, uh, so you know, so those are some places where I think a lot of, of value is added. And you're you're mostly focusing on sort of microeconomic uh, tools here, uh, but you do do a little bit of comparison. So, g- give us the compare and contrast <laughs> for how economists have been influential in. Uh, macro versus micro, and sort of why it took these different forms in each case. Yeah. Um, so right. So so I mostly talk about microeconomics in the book. Um, I do have a chapter that looks at a little bit of the history of macro as well. Um, and macroeconomics kind of took its own trajectory into Washington, and I think it has influence through different kinds of channels. You know, macro really came to Washington much earlier than microeconomics did. So, you know, you're talking about the 30s and 40s, not the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it uh, you know, has been very influential, uh, particularly at some points in time. But its influence, I think, um, it's both narrower in some ways because it really is more concerned with specific policy domains, right? So you're specifically talking about monetary policy or fiscal policy, um, you know, inflation. Um, it's also got particular, you know, I think it's much more channeled through specific institutions. So I think you've got macro economists are influential, um, sometimes as policy advisors, depending on who is in charge. Um, and then also through institutions like the Fed. Um, you know, I think what's distinctive about microeconomics is uh, not only uh, the the time frame, but that because it's it's because it's a way of thinking that you can apply to any type of policy you know, that works in any policy domain. Its influence is much more diffused throughout different kinds of policy making in different policy areas, um, and is sort of built into uh, you know the institutions that we use for um, 
making policy, developing regulations, you know, working out some of those details of how policy actually works in a way that's uh, distinct from, from macro. So many of the trends that you're tracking um, seem to have happened to some degree across the rich world. Um, so, so what does that tell us? Does it tell us that the, the sort of more specific stories you tell of how it came to power in, in, in the U.S. Um, are not necessarily, weren't necessarily necessary, uh, that it could have uh, come to power in lots of different contexts? Uh, does it tell us that the U.S. movement uh, became worldwide and, and there's a path kind of from the U.S. to explain the, the rest of the world? Yeah, I think there's sort of two ways to answer that. Um, you know, one is that uh, yeah, I think that given how government developed over, you know, governments developed over the course of the 20th century, and given uh, the way that sort of broader systems of knowledge developed, like I think there were going to be these trends towards formalization and quantification that were going to play out in governments in many places in some way. Uh, you know, roughly during these periods, regardless of what happened. And it, you know, in the U.S., it happened to be centered around economics and, and it took its own particular form. But, you know, there is this piece of it that I think is just a broader trend towards developing tools for managing government. And what about but, on the political side? Um, you know, there's there's sort of a there's sort of a case that uh, the, the U.S. was on a different trajectory by the 1970s. Uh, most of the welfare state uh, comparative literature doesn't say that the trajectory has changed after the 1970s as the U.S. kind of story does. It more says that from the 30s and 70s, governments took particular turns. And then sort of since then, there hasn't been as much building of, of government. So Right, right. No, and I, think, I mean, and I think there is a piece in which, you know, the U.S. was kind of an early mover in this direction. And there is, you know, it is at least partly a diffusion story, too. And, um, you know, I think... You know, I think you see this particularly in um, some of the ways that public management techniques sort of diffuse outward from U.S. institutions. And it's not necessarily happening through U.S. government, but from U.S. academia and then building ties to transnational organizations that um, that sort of build uh build communities of people in other countries who are using roughly the same set of tools and have you know roughly the same types of training. And so I do think there's a piece of it that 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 diffuses outward and um you know and, and takes slightly different forms and you see things like new public management in the in the 90s, which, you know, is not quite the same, but it has a lot of overlap. And so so I do think there's a a, a space in which because the US was both sort of, you know, still the, the hegemon at that point and also because uh of the global centrality of, you know, U.S. academia, that those ideas and, and tools and techniques really did spread outward from there. And what about the specificity of this story to government? Um, you know, a lot of these similar kinds of techniques uh, certainly are in use in the nonprofit sector and increasingly in the corporate uh, sector as well. And even kind of part of the story of economic thinking is it's increasing use in, in personal life and self-help <laughs> kinds of things too. So this is, it seems bigger than a trend about, um, you know, economists infiltrating government. It seems like a, a broader rise of, of that kind of thinking. What do you think? Yeah, no. And I think if you wanted to, you could tell this as like a story of a century or more, you know, you could start with scientific management and just kind of built your way up from there. Um, you know, I, so I, I think, this general idea that that we're going to continue to find ways to um, 
to try to use calculation to make different kinds of activities as as effective or cost effective as possible uh, is is something that just kind of goes with the the you know development of institutions in the twentieth century. You know, I do think what ends up happening is that those tools in different kind of contexts end up being developed in specific ways um, that are locally specific, right? And so, uh, to the extent that that some kinds of techniques actually are developed in economics as a discipline and then sort of spread outward from there, you know, then they tend to carry um, certain uh, ways of thinking about problems with them, you know, maybe certain standards of evidence, uh, you know, certain, you know, assumptions about the, the, the value efficiency or other sort of value-based assumptions are associated with that. And so I think those kinds of things um, may be actually uh, sort of grounded in a discipline. And so, so while you do have this kind of broad spread of, this broad category of techniques, it also matters that exactly where they come from. So the Biden administration uh, started with some talk that there was going to be a change to uh, this uh, trajectory and some real personnel differences um, uh, with Clinton and Obama uh, in terms of the kinds of economists and the non-economists that they brought in uh, in these uh, kinds of roles. Um, we're sort of to a point where that, that has <laughs> looks less likelier to uh, result in, in major policy change in, in a different direction. So I guess, what, what do you think of the current prospects? And does that suggest that, I guess, the sort of ideational change uh, or the change in, in the intellectual influence isn't actually enough, that this, was, that this is more about sort of the constraints of the political system and, and where we are on, this, on the spectrum? Yeah, I mean, despite having just written a whole book about, right, like ideas and how they matter, like, I don't think it's enough, right? Like, I think, I think the structural constraints are ultimately going to be really important. And that, you know, that even the ideas themselves are kind of evolve in response to the broader structural environment. So, um, so yeah, so I don't think that the ideas are enough. But I do think that just the fact that you know, that sort of the most ambitious things that Biden talked about at the beginning of the administration, you know, that there's no new Green Deal, Green New Deal or something like that. You know, those things not coming to fruition, I don't think necessarily means that there isn't a real change. And I think what you do see is that, you know, the Overton window has moved quite a bit in terms of what kinds of policies are seriously considered or seriously debated. Um, and there's a lot of things that are on the table now that really wouldn't have been you know, that just would have been pretty unthinkable, you know, five, 10 years ago. And so, um, you know, so I think it is a long term story of, of change. You know, I, I don't think you know, we're going to see dramatic change in the period of, of a couple of years, but I think it's um, pretty interesting how you know, some of the new appointees have actually um, moved the needle in terms of what we're talking about, even if it's we don't see quite as much change in terms of what's actually being done. <laughs> what's your assessment of the Biden administration in the, in the sort of use of these tools? Have these um, different kinds of advisors succeeded in any difference in practice in kind of how government considers policy or uh, these kind of administrative centers that are used to policy planning uh, work? Um, in other words, is, is there kind of some sort of internal story that could be changing behind the scenes? Yeah, I think there are specific examples where where you see this kind of change. I mean, I think antitrust is the one where you see the most visible and and um, pointed in some ways 
uh, change or, or sort of conflict between the two, the, these two, two different uh, approaches to, to thinking about it. Um, and, you know, antitrust is interesting because it's also, you know, of all the policy domains that I look at, which are, are a bunch, you know, it's the one where, you know, economics really had the most influence in that, um, that, you know, it really was able to sort of define what the terms of antitrust policy were. And then that ended up being written into case law and uh, sort of embodied by uh, the enforcement agencies so that the so that antitrust was really def- redefined around having specifically the goal that you know that that economists thought it should have um you know which was sort of pursuing pursuing allocative efficiency um you know right now you've got people who are uh you know who are not necessarily on board with that framework who are leading the antitrust division and the FTC and it is interesting so it, i think it's creating a lot of a lot of conflict um and you know, I think this is this is one of the places where you know that, that I spend a lot of time talking about why it matters that um, that you have particular kinds of thinking that are built into particular agencies. Um, but you know, if you are at the antitrust division and you want to try to move the needle and say, oh, we should think about other kinds of corporate power beyond focusing purely on consumer welfare, focusing on prices, um, you know, it, it's it's there's some challenges to doing that because you've got a whole agency that's kind of uh, filled with people who are who are oriented towards this way of thinking, and so I think you see some of those those um, conflicts being played out in interesting ways. And so, uh, yeah, so I think it'll be interesting to see what that actually looks like in the in the years to come. And is there any advice for I don't want to say the opponents of this uh, viewpoint, but I mean, what can what can they learn from? from the success of this kind of thinking and the creation of sets of tools and institutions that uh, made their way into policy. Yeah. I mean, this is not a very um, sexy kind of soundbite, but I, I think that, that really one of the things that is an important takeaway of this is that, you know, it matters who is in these agencies in the, in the guts of Washington, right. That it matters that, that it's important to think about, um, you know, where are the veto points? You know, where is it that regulations actually get hammered out and defined? And if you are interested in um, in advocating for other ways of thinking about problems, you know, where are these very unglamorous places that that um, that economic thinking has really been naturalized? And you know, that and and those are the places that you need to think about um, making change in the long run. And so, I really think it's about thinking about how to how to build different infrastructure in the long run um, that that creates, you know, that either opens up some of these ideas or that that creates some alternatives to them. And what about within uh, the disciplines? Um, the, you know, economics certainly seems to be changing. Uh, political science and economics are at least using the word inequality almost as much as sociologists uh, now. Um, uh, and certainly have there's there's new agendas to, to some extent. Um, uh, but what can be learned kind of from the internal story within the economics discipline of how this was brought about um, for, for people who, who might want the disciplines to take a different direction? Yeah, no, I think there's been a huge amount of change within economics, right? That, that um, you know, there's just an explosion of research that's focused on inequality or inequalities in some sense. You know, there's much more attention to uh, to labor right now, right? There's a lot of focus on um, things like labor market monopsony and the idea that that 
concentration maybe has, has, has been a factor in driving wages down. Um, and so the, the discipline itself, I think has, has evolved quite a lot. Um, and, you know, I think, I think has the potential to continue to do that. So, um, you know, and I, and I think this is one of the things where it's the people who are just entering the discipline who are going to drive these changes. Right. And so, um, like I was saying about, about people who are currently enrolling in masters of public policy programs, maybe looking a little bit different than they did 10 years ago. I think you're seeing the same thing within economics and you know, those people are going to drive the research agenda for the next generation. So there's, you know, there's lots of room for, for movement. So what's next for you? Uh, can we, can we describe the next uh, book project or the, uh, the next uh, route from here and anything we didn't get to from this one that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not quite sure if I'm going to promise uh, the next the next book project <laughs> yet. But um, you know, but one piece of of this this story that I'm really um, want to continue to dive into is um, you know, less about the economists. I might be done with economists for over a while, but uh, but um, but you know, I got very interested in in the market governance piece of this story, and I think there's a whole big story about. Um, how policy changes in the 1980s really restructured markets that, that that hasn't fully been told yet. You know, I think we have the sort of conventional account about, you know, business interests and tax cuts and deregulation. But um, the stuff that tends to appeal to me is the is the very, very wonky stuff. And so um, so I think there's there's a lot of um, pieces of that of that story that haven't really been told. And so that's that's one thing I'm, I'm uh, looking at. What what about the I guess what about the um, the reception um, for, of your book so far among economists um, and just sort of the we've talked about before I think the the sort of the is there a detente between uh, sociology and economics um, and and is there kind of a direction to that that field Yeah, I mean I, it's interesting. You know, I tried to I try I really tried to walk this line in the book between um, obviously it's critical of economics in many ways at the same time that I think economics has a lot of valuable tools and, uh, and also, you know, uh, just a lot of people who I would, you know, like to make common cause with. So, um, uh, you know, I think I've certainly had uh, a number of economists express interest in it. And, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, seem, seem to, find some value in, in, in what it is uh, that I'm trying to do here. You know, at the same time, I'm sure uh, there are people who are going to be put off by somebody coming from outside the discipline and and offering a critique and who don't necessarily uh, see economics as having the kinds of effects that I do, um, particularly because, you know, I think it's clear that, um, right, there's lots of ways in which economics doesn't have effects, right? You know, economists don't go into a room in Washington and, and make some policy pronouncement and people listen to them. It's, it's, it's these much sort of subtler channels of influence that I think are, are um, important. So yeah, I guess, you know, the book just came out. So um, perhaps I will, I will get a little bit better sense of that. But uh, my hope is that even if uh, economists don't like the book, uh, that they will feel like it is a fair representation of what um, actually happened uh, in, in U.S. politics over you know, the period that I look at. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you liked this discussion, you should check out our previous related episodes. I think you'll like How to Change Americans' Views of Inequality, How the Left and Right Undermine Trust in Government, 
Inflation hurts presidents, and it's not the media's fault. Why rising inequality doesn't stimulate political action. And why lawyers rule American politics. Thanks to Elizabeth Pop Berman for joining me. Please check out Thinking Like an Economist, and then listen in next time. 